It's Sunday Social, an hour dedicated to social media with Vaughan Davis. Picking me up and down Spinning me round and round And welcome to show number 219 of Sunday Social. I'm Vaughan Davis and I think when it gets to 220, someone should bake me. A cake. Hey, I'd love you to be part of the show. The uh, the text is 3920 keyword live that'll pop up right here in front of me. You can tweet me, tweety, tweet, tweet, and, and more about tweets later actually, uh, on at Vaughan Davis. And if after 219 shows you don't know what Twitter is, go to twitter.com, have a bit of a sniff around and, uh, you know, See if you can find it in your heart. Find it in your heart to follow me on your phone. Hey, later on, Anna Connell returns to the chair with the uh, the science, the science of we really are what we tweet. That's interesting. Um, a, a really bad news, really bad news if you're a, a fan of tape measures. If you like your tape measure, we've got bad news for you. And why your next burger might be made by a robot. First, though... Gaming, and I mean computer gaming, not feeding money into the pokies, is big business worldwide and here in New Zealand. Last month saw local game developers Grinding Gears sell their business for $100 million to Chinese tech company Tencent. Gaming employs hundreds, if not thousands, of New Zealanders around the country and is becoming a popular choice of study for students. Michael Vermeulen chairs the New Zealand Game Developers Association. Michael, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Hey, tell me about the game development industry in New Zealand. How big is it? What, what, what does it do? How many people work there? What's, what's going on? Yeah, so the games industry in New Zealand is... Um, it's an exciting one. It, it's growing really quickly um, for such a small small country. So we've got about um, we, we're doing we're checking our stats. Uh, we're actually doing a survey right now, and uh, it's, we're we're employing about 600 people across the country in around 30, maybe just over 30 studios. Um, last year we saw our industry's value grow to 99.87 million uh, New Zealand dollars. Um, so with this sale of Tencent, that's obviously uh, going to double that pretty much um, looking uh, at, at that for next year, um, looking at the fiscal year. So um, it's, it's a really exciting industry to be in. It's the fastest growing creative uh, industry in New Zealand. Um, and, the, and the games we make do really well internationally. So that's, that's excellent. And it draws a lot of attention um, worldwide. So you talked about a, a, a game studio. Um, most of us won't have any concept of what that looks like. And, uh, you know, going through your numbers, you had about 600 people, 30, 30 companies. So I'm guessing it's a, a game studio is a company of 20, 30 people. Paint, paint me a picture of what that looks like. Yeah, so um, <clears throat> we've got 
quite a varied amount of um, kind of sized companies around the country. So our largest studios employ just over 100 people. Where some of our smaller studios are maybe up to three people. Um, so it really depends on the kind of uh, games that the studio um, might be working on. And so within a studio, so the average size, you're right, is about 20, 30, um, if we look at our numbers. Um, and those, like for the amount of people in the studio, they are always split up into um, different kind of departments. So we have our, our, our tech-savvy programmers, we've got our creative artists, We've got our, our game designers coming up with um, how games are supposed to work and how they are supposed to um, engage our players. Um, and then you've got a couple of management roles, of course, and um, support roles to go with that. So um, it's quite varied uh, kind of skills that people need to work in the games industry. So well, what sort of games are being made in New Zealand? Is, is there a particular genre or is it is it all sorts of things? Interestingly for New Zealand, it's all sorts of things. So we, we're looking at games that are, of course, your, your action-oriented, the games you see on kind of TV advertisements um, that, that may or may not be violent. Um, and... On the other hand, we're looking at games that are doing incredibly well that are, um, are puzzle games um, or games about nature. Um, and then even going even further down that, that kind of spectrum is we're also looking at games that are used to kind of educate um, children or young adults um, or, or even um, games that are used um, as kind of simulations to, 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 train, um, to train people. So you mentioned violence, and computer game violence has, has got a, you know, it regularly gets quite a lot of bad press. And I think um, in, in the States recently, post, you know, one of the, the weekly mass shootings they have over there, one of their politicians said, you know, here's, here's the problem, it's, it's computer games. Yeah. As, yeah. as game developers, how, how much thought uh, does the, the industry give to that effect, or, or, or is it just, um, you know, bad spin? Well, uh, it's, it's, I guess it's, we, we give it a lot of thought. Um, we've got rating boards in, in all countries and in all regions around the world that regulate these kind of things and kind of um, recommend kind of, uh, parents to look at the... Or like they always recommend parents to look at the games they buy for their children and um, certain games are not allowed to be sold for certain age groups and all that kind of stuff. Um, while we're making games, we're obviously considering this. I, I work on game myself, and we just recently had to go through our classification um, process to, to, to make sure our game is sold to the right target audience, mm -hmm. the right people uh, across the world. Um, and we were looking at game, we are like, okay, well, we, we don't really want it to be, we don't want our game to be seen as it's just a violent game. Um, so we, we cut back on, on, on certain things. We make sure that um, our game in particular is quite uh, artistic in that it's abstract and stuff. So we don't really need to 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 show a lot of violence in 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 a way that's that's kind of representative of real world violence. On the other hand, there are of course games around the world that are being created um, that are supposed to be really realistic, um, and they then are obviously uh, regulated by these or, or or checked by these rating boards and. Um, there are certain things that you just you just can't sell 
Um, so uh, it's it's always in the back of our minds. It's it's often used um, for the example that that you gave there in the U.S. It is often used as a as a kind of scapegoat medium because mm-hmm. it, to to me um, it is no different than than watching a violent movie, for instance. Um, so it's often used as scapegoat, but it's very much on our minds um, all the time because obviously it affects uh, our, our business and our and our, and our games. Tell me about the the business model of game um, development and, and and sales because you know thinking back I don't know twenty years when I, I was playing my first computer games maybe maybe longer uh, ago than that uh, you know you'd you'd go into a uh, a shop you'd you'd hand over a hundred dollars and you'd get a, a cereal box size thing inside inside which were some discs. You put them in your machine. You put them in your machine and, and play, and that was the business model. That you know, they they sold something, gave them a hundred bucks, and that was that. How does it work today? So the, the, the kind of um, business model has changed over the years. You still, um, especially for your Playstations and your Xboxes, so your consoles around the world, you still have these kind of. Um, Box products. There are of course, no no serial box sizes anymore. Um, they're way more compact, much like DVDs and, and movies are sold. Um, but increasingly, and uh, the the biggest um, kind of I guess area of sales is really online. So we do sell our products digitally. So it's kind of um, it's it's a it's a business model where we don't well it's weightless. So um, we we sell our, our our we sell it like software. Um, so you can go on storefronts on on your computer and buy this game that you can then play from any any computer ever in the world. Um, and and that's kind of how we how we do it. So in New Zealand, we're looking at 97% of our games are are exported, mm-hmm. and that is because of this digital market where we can sell our, our products online. Um, without the need for having um, CDs or, or any box product necessarily, because obviously that that adds to your to your, um, to your manufacturing cost of, of this stuff. So um, it's very much changed from what it was 20 years ago, and I think it's for the better because it does make games more accessible. Um, if you just think about games being sold on mobile devices, you can download games for free, you can buy games for your phone. Um, just like anywhere on the bus or, or wherever you are, so um, it's it's a very exciting kind of way to look at a business, um, and it, it does make it more accessible to one get games, uh, buy games, but also to make games because obviously there's huge opportunity if you have access to um, to to selling anywhere in the world, and you, and you don't need that physical export. The other, the other big change, of course, is. You know, instead of typically paying a hundred dollars, nowadays typically you pay nothing. You know, most 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 games up front are free. So how does that work? How how does how does the studio make money out of a game that seems on the face of it to be free? Yeah, so that's that's an interesting question. Cause that's something um, that in the in the industry we call free to play, um, and it's been around for for a while. Um, the business model has changed over the years. So generally, it, it kind of started with people who um, kind of 
making games available for free and, and um, especially on mobile games, maybe showing an advertisement every few seconds. Um, the company gets money for each advertisement shown. It's very little, a cent or two uh, or even half a cent for every time someone sees an ad. But if, if you get a million players, that starts adding up. Um, that has developed into uh, what we call um, um, monetization uh, within these games. So uh, there are lots of games where the game might be free, but you might be able to buy, um, say you're playing some kind of action game, you might be able to buy um, any kind of cosmetic items to identify your character in the game better um, or, or sell you booster packs or any of those kind of things. Um, so there's a lot of ways you, you can, I, I suppose, effectively run a business on a, a free game. Um, the, the, the challenge there is doing that ethically and also at the same time having the player base, so the amount of people using that game um, to actually create an income because obviously you, you do need to, to make money and eventually pay your staff and grow, the, grow your game. Yeah, I mean, we've got games that are, you know, free, free to download, free to play, but people are paying for things like dance moves, you know, celebratory dance moves that their character will do once they've, I don't know, killed all the other characters, which is which is a hard thing to have foreseen, you know, 20 years ago that, uh, you know, we're not paying for the game, we're paying for the dance move. Hey, I'm talking to Michael Vermeulen from uh, the New Zealand Game Developers Association back after this. It's Sunday Social. Everything you need to know about social media with Vaughan Davis. And welcome back to Radio Live Sunday Social. I'm Vaughan Davis talking to Michael Vermeulen, who chairs the New Zealand Game Developers Association. Uh, Michael, welcome back. Thank you. Let's talk about who makes these uh, games. So, you know, I, I, I'm a dude, you're a dude. Is it just dudes? No, that's a... Um I suppose we're mostly dudes. Unfortunately, it's something that we're working on quite a bit. But people playing games, people making games can be can be anyone. Anyone can do this. So New Zealand has, just like most tech sectors, uh, about 17% women working in the industry, mm -hmm. um, which is quite low. We're obviously working on on getting um, more diversity in the industry, and it's and it's getting a lot better. A lot faster than other industries. Um, so where there used to be this kind of uh, idea that, that it's always these, these men in the basement, that's no longer really the, the thing. And we're working really hard to kind of um, highlight the, the amount of women working in the industry because there were many um, women working in the industry 20 years ago um, making amazing games that um, are still like these best-selling classics or, or most well-known classics. So it's it's still mostly dudes, unfortunately, but we're working really hard on changing that. And, and, and that perhaps is reflected certainly in the games that you see publicised, you know, in uh, TV ads and online ads and, and uh, billboards and things. You know, r robots with guns, basically. Hey, and, and I'm not saying that women aren't into robots with guns, but it, it, it seems the, uh, the makeup of the workforce sort of flows through into the, the dominant sort of games, right? Absolutely, yeah, and that, that's why it is, um, and I personally believe this, and that's what we're working on with the association and the studios in New Zealand. It's really getting, the, the moment you start getting diverse employees, you get these diverse games coming out. So just recently we had the largest um, entertainment expo for games in the world, E3, in, in the U.S., mm -hmm. and 
um, the new games announced there, you can clearly see how um, how diversity has, has impacted these games and made more interesting games coming out with more female lead characters um, that, that are no longer kind of just appropriated, you know? Um, it's really like telling a, a new story and, and giving a new perspective, and that's great. So t- tell me a bit more about that. You know, I'm thinking, when I think of um, games with female lead characters, my mind goes back, again, 20 years to, to Lara Croft and, and Tomb Raider, which is, you know, uh, arguable whether or not that's empowering. What, what, are, the, what are the female-driven, uh, female-friendly games coming through? What do they look like? So the ones coming, coming out now um, are, are really about no longer kind of just seeing the, the female characters as objects or like props to kind of build a story forwards, right? Like the same kind of things you might see in movies, but really making them kind of these role model figures. So Lara Croft, obviously, is, is a great example of, of arguably not being the best uh, representation of women in games. Um, but then looking at the newer Lara Croft games coming out, um, they're empowering the character way more, building a story in the background. It's no longer um, just a, kind of a side character or, or a physical appearance that needs to appeal. It's really um, just having having a background, having depth in characters, representing them as the same way as you would um, for for a man in 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 a, in a male role. Um, and that I, I think that's great. The, the, the the kind the, the kind of games that that come out now, um, it, it it's it's just wonderful to see that it's no longer your typical middle-aged uh, white white man um, in in the main main role because there's, there's a lot of those games and, and they will always be there. Um, just having a more diverse cast, I think, is great for um, gamers as well, seeing as about half of the gamers in the world are women. Um, it's just great to see that they can also go into a game um, and and kind of identify or, or kind of, um, I guess, identify with the main character better than uh, always having to play as a male character. If my, if my teenage son, you know, wakes up one morning and declares that, you know, he wants to be a game developer, that's his, his career path, where should he go then? What, what, where should he start? So I, I strongly believe because of all, we've got free tools available that we call engines um, that you can just freely download and follow tutorials on on how to do how to make a game on on YouTube, all absolutely for free. And that's what I I would always recommend is um, look up a a quick tutorial on YouTube, download one of these free um, programs. Unity or, or Unreal or Game Maker or there's a whole bunch of them out there, um, and just just try something out and see how it is because it's it's obviously it's it's one thing to play games and love games, uh, but I, I I sometimes say making games is is even harder than rocket science. It's it's not the easiest thing to do in the world. So a lot of people might be surprised by the amount of work that goes into uh, making a game. But I'd say definitely start there, and then perhaps consider. Um, applying, maybe trying to find an in- internship role at a at a company, um, or find a, um, a ter- like if, if you're going to university or whatever, you can. Um, there are programs that are, are kind of um, include either game development or are specialised in game development around the country. Yeah. Um, and for that, I'd say just 
check what the what the graduates have done and if yep. that's something you think you can do go for it now you, you said that making a game is hard but i guess what you really mean is making a good game is hard because you know making a crappy game would be pretty, pretty straightforward what what's yeah. a, what what is a good game you must you must <laughs> think you must think a lot about this what, what what are the qualities of a really good game yeah, so that that that's a, that's an interesting question. Um, it's obviously it, it is something that I, that's kind of my job is to create a, a good game. Um, I've always said, you, look, you you make a game of a certain genre um, or on a certain story or whatever, but but you're making it for someone, right? Um, it's always great if you if you make a game that you want to play yourself. That's like the ultimate bonus. Um, but generally, you're making games for someone else. So people have different interests. People expect things and want things in certain games. Um, so you kind of need to cater to that. And then um, what we do a lot is we, we, we do a lot of research. We look at other games. We see, okay, what did they, what did they do in this game, um, the successful game, and why is that something that, that players enjoy? And so um, on the one hand, there's a huge psychological aspect to, to game development and um, how people interact with games. And on the other hand, it's, uh, it changes so frequently. You need to stay up to date and say, hey, the people are now enjoying games like um, Angry Birds or um, Candy oh. Crush Saga, these mobile games. That God help me. <laughs> so you, you kind of look at the market and you see, okay, these games are, are interesting and are popular. And then you ask yourself, why are these um are these games doing so well? And well, I, I ask my, I ask myself that all the time. Um, so flipping on its head, and this might be a hard question for the the guy who you know represents all game all game developers. But if you could go back in time, let's play a game. If you could go back in time ten years and and uh, stop the evolution, stop the development of one sort of game that you wish never existed, what would it be? <laughs> oh, that's an interesting one. I'd have to I'd have to think about that. Uh, for a bit. I mean, there's um, oh, that is that is a very hard question. I mean, this is obviously a super subjective question as well. But um, there there, there is there is a genre of of ultra violent games. Yeah. Um, that are obviously they they're um, regulated quite strongly and often kind of um, banned in certain countries. And I, there's some that are just kind of uh, they they try and um, I guess challenge the status quo with extreme views and, and all these kind of things, and those are the kind of games that I, I feel like um, that, that that's great and all. Um, but I don't like if there's one genre I suppose of games that I'd rather not like stop development. Uh, that, that would possibly be it. That would yeah. be it. Hey, uh, Michael Vermeulen from the New Zealand Game Developers Association, thank you so much for joining me on Sunday Social. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's Sunday Social with Vaughan Davis. And welcome back to Sunday Social. You can listen back to that entire interview, fascinating interview with Michael Vermeulen at uh, radiolive.co.nz under shows and Sunday Social. Or if you're a podcast person, head on over to iTunes and uh, just search Radio Live, Sunday Social, Vaughan Davis, any of those things and, uh, and, and see what that gets you. You might be listening to this as a podcast now. In fact, this might be the distant future. This might be the distant future. Hello, distant future. It's 2018 and we're making a radio show. And you'll need to look it up on Wikipedia to see what radio is because you're in the distant future. Anna Connell, I'm ranting. You really are. Hello. Um, <laughs> 
but just just listening to just listening to Michael Vermeulen there talking about video games. I don't think you and I have ever spoken about gaming. You a gamer? No, not you a ga- not really. I look. I was when I was a child. I played Alex the Kid and Wonder Boy and Monster Land. I've never even heard of those. Just like Sega Master System okay, games. Okay, it's like old okay. school. Yep. My partner's a big gamer. I play Candy Crush. Oh well. <laughs> You see, yeah, we—I don't know if you're listening, but we, we kind of touched on we touched on that, and and it, it's a bit like anything really. It's but you know, there's junk food and there's and there's uh, wholesome food. You know, there's junk games and there's good games. Yeah, are you telling me Candy Crush is a junk game? I'm not telling you. Yes, it is. It's a um, very men- mentally challenging game, Vaughn. Well, it is. I suppose it is, but I, I get really judgmental. I it's get, a terrible game. It's awful. I just do it. It's like a twiddle my finger reflex yeah type thing. I, I, I'll, I'll sit there and I'll see someone playing it and I'll go oh look at you look at you they, they might be a they might be a, a Nobel Prize winner but if they're playing Candy Crush poof, they're down in my <laughs> they're down in my estimation uh, here, here's a little thing though I don't know if you care about what people think about you when you're playing Candy Crush but um, there's a game which I, as far as I can tell is kind of intellectually similar but it looks quite pointy headed because it's got numbers in it Ah, maybe I need to get yeah, that. Yeah, it's called 2048, 2048, which is which is a, a multiple of two. It's oh, a, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, you're, you're, you're just you're, moving things around with you your finger. You join the twos mm. to make a four, to make an eight, to, and, and so on. Mm. And, you know, on the on the one hand, it's really just Candy Crush um, or something like it. But on the other hand, people go, oh, look at Anna. It's basically, she's doing, she's basically she's, doing the Times Crossword yeah, version she's of doing, numbers. She's doing mathematics. <laughs> she's smart. Hey, um... You and I, I'm, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think how our paths first crossed. But I'm gonna put good money, half a bitcoin, on which is probably you know uh, by That's the time a lot of li- money, by yeah. the time they're listening to this as a podcast in the distant future, it's probably worth either nothing or or you could buy you know the South Island with it. Those are the two possible outcomes. <laughs> um, I'm guessing we met on Twitter. I think we did. We did. I, I think that's yeah, how, we how did it came absolutely. About. And I, I know Twitter's not. You know the be all and end all, but it, it is it is quite neat in the way that it surfaces who you are before you meet someone. Oh, totally. <laughs> I think more so than any other social media network. I mean, I've I've got a job off Twitter. I my fiance. I got a job off is Twitter. from Twitter. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. It, it's it is a place I think where people reveal a lot about themselves, and you can actually build the basis of a solid chunk of friendship before you actually meet the person. I, I got I got a a, a directorship mm. through through Twitter. Yeah. Oh, in fact, we should say congratulations on your appointment to the Waikato Rugby. Oh, board. thank you, Vaughan. Thank you. Yes. Did you did you get that off Twitter? Um, no, not quite, but it's sort of a, a bit of a side product of my kind of expertise in that yeah, area. That's all yeah, we, we we need someone who understands that, and so I'm not going to be pejorative about. You. <laughs> <laughs> about the Waikato Rugby Union. Um, yeah, I, I got a directorship. Um, well, you know, one thing led to another, and, you know, the, the chair followed me on Twitter and thought, oh, he sounds interesting. But that's the thing. You you don't necessarily look at someone's photo because quite often they don't have a photo. I mean, I have. I think I have a cartoon You have a still. cartoon, yeah. Um, you don't sort of watch videos. You don't watch, you know, see pictures of, of the food they're eating and, well, sometimes you do, or the holidays they're taking. You just hear their thoughts. And the University of Bristol has been doing some um, research into this, and it's really interesting. Um, They analysed 7 billion words from 
800 million tweets. I'm going to do the maths. It doesn't sound about right. But anyway, they did 7 billion words, and they learned something about how our thinking changes across the day, which I think is rather sweet and interesting. So they, they discovered, and I'd be interested to know if you think this you know, reflects your own um, behaviour and certainly online behaviour. We are at our most analytical first thing in the morning, around 6am, which is amazing because most people aren't awake at 6 No, that totally rings true for me. I am, I think I'm calmer in the morning. I, for me on Twitter as well, I really love the early morning because it's just before like the New Zealand story of the day has reared its ugly head and uh, the international news has just kind of reached that period where it's being analytical about the day's events before. So yep. it's quite a nice time. I, I think I am calmer and more analytical calmer in the Calmer and more a analytical. Yep. And, and in the evenings, you get more emotional. Yes, get, because you've just, you've just had a day. And, and you're, you're just drunk. like, oh, you're God. <laughs> you've, had, you've had a day and you've I'm had I'm drunk a, and I'm crying over the laundry, you know? Yeah, like you, You've had a day and you've had a Chardonnay. Yep. Um, but really interesting. And, and I think there's there's opportunities for all sorts of research that could happen into this. I'd love to know more about myself from my 80,000 tweets or how many it's been. I think that's really interesting because, you know, there's a lot of stuff that people try and do with Twitter, all sentiment analysis. And, and, and within New Zealand, the sample size is never really big enough. But this is a huge study with lots of words and lots of tweets. So there probably is some, you know, yeah, I, I, so I, I, stuff in there. I, I look forward to seeing what else, what else um, comes down the pipe. I'll tell you the other thing I like about early morning Twitter. Um, and, uh, you know, if rarely I, I wake in the middle of the night to the extent that I want to pick up my phone, which is, you know, you shouldn't do, but sometimes I do because yeah, it's my alarm die. clock. Uh, it's quite neat to see um, the conversations in other time zones because yeah. I try and follow people around the world Me if too. I can. And suddenly it's it's like walking into a you know a, a cafe in Prague. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. I really really like it, and you still get that a little bit in the early morning when you wake up. It's cool, which is kind of neat. So we'll look for more research coming down the pipe from that. But um, sometimes though, sometimes though, I have no segue here. But sometimes you just want a hamburger. <laughs> you just want. <laughs> I really feel like a burger now. We, by the time by the time we finish chatting about this, you either will really, really, really feel like a burger, or you won't want a burger at all. So, a company in guess which state of America, California, has put millions of dollars and probably uh, millions of dollars of start-up funds, you know, in, investor capital um, money, uh, and taken eight years, not to cure cancer, not to teach our children to read, not to provide us with warm homes and an equitable society, but to make burgers. So they've spent eight years making a burger-making robot. So I just can't with this because they've got, what have they got? They've got 20 computers, 350 sensors and 50 actuators. Whatever an actuator whatever is. Whatever that is. And then tubes. With things. Just... Just get the people to make the damn burgers. This is a waste of time and money. Well, apart from anything else, the people who can't find work doing anything else other than making burgers are now not only unemployed, but they have no money to buy the burgers. I just feel this is just kind of one of those gimmick-type things where, oh, it's never been done before, so let's do it. It's far easier to scale a burger chain that involves hiring 10 people than having to buy one of these Robots. I mean, it's just ridiculous, and it, I, I hate this kind of innov innovation because it's such a waste of people's so, kind of thinking so, and time. So, if you're if you're walking down walking down Queen Street, there's a, a pop up restaurant appears, and it's the burger restaurant. And they're doing free samples that day. You just go nah, -uh. 
Yeah, I, I honestly, I mean, look, I don't turn down free samples very often, especially not of burgers, but I honestly think I would because I would just be like, ugh. And also, I don't want my food coming down tubes. You know, like it just all feels but a bit you could be, weird. You, you could equally argue, and, you know, Facebook and Twitter show us this all the time, you could equally argue, argue you don't want your food touched by, you know, disgruntled teenagers who, who put um, unspeakable things in them. Oh, okay, yeah. I mean, The I, tubes won't do that. No, the tubes won't do that, but the odds on the really unspeakable things, I'm fine with a little bit of hand dirt. <laughs> a, li- a, a little bit of <laughs> a little bit of unspeakable. I'll have I'll have I'll have a Big Mac, please. No cheese, but just with some hand dirt, if, if, if you can. Hey, so so moving on from that though, the the obvious the obvious way to use this technology. Let's just accept that you know the the multi million dollar eight year uh, project has not got us to Mars, but it's made us a burger. Um, the the obvious use of this is is to is to um, make lab meat burgers from it. Where do you stand on lab meat? So this is this is oh, chem- yeah. chemically identical uh, protein to what you might find in a piece of beef, except it was never a cow. It's just you know they've just had a cow sneeze into a test yeah. tube, and well, hopefully not with um, uh, Mycoplasma bovis. And uh, that's from, okay for humans. From that, they've grown a cow. Yeah, I don't know because I, on one hand, I think from a sustainability point of view, there's some very real merits in it, and then on the other hand, I guess I like to eat things that have come from the ground or alive animals. So you'd eat it? You'd eat, you'd eat. I think I'd definitely try it, but then I don't know. Like, when do you? How do? How far do you go with that? This fascinates me. This fascinates me. So if we can make if we can, if, if from a smidgen of DNA we can make beef, yeah. Why? Why just beef? Because I've always wanted to know what whale tastes like, but I'm 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 not good with whales being killed. But I know that the Japanese have been doing research for mm. many years, collecting DNA samples from whales. That's the only reason they catch them, right? So we could do whale. That's not a problem. We could we could do whale that no whale was harmed. Mm. We could do kiwi. That would be fine. No problem with that. You, so uh, this is like the sliding scale of ooh. We no, could, so kiwi, kiwi is above whale for me. Uh, oh, you'd sooner eat a kiwi? Yeah, I probably shouldn't say this on here, but I think that bird's a little bit useless. Okay, how about a baby? How about a child? No. Why not? Because it's not in any way, shape or form appetising. You don't know that. No, but it's not, though, because I, I think there's... I hear it tastes like pork. And, 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 you have and, and, not heard that. And, yes, I have heard that. <laughs> this, this is from early early accounts of cannibalism in the 19th century. All right. There, there is there is a strong argument to make. I mean, you could you could build a whole superfoods empire on on you know the best protein for humans, human. No, no. I think people will like. I think people will still just want to eat what we have always eaten. I think there will definitely probably be a market for uh, exotic. I chew my fingernails. Exotic foods. That's human. Yeah, yeah, I know. But, I mean, okay, so maybe they'll make a fingernail bit of meat and you can have that. Do you, know what I'm, do you know what I'm thinking now? If this, if, uh, Because this is a podcast, someone was listening to this 20 years into the future, eating a dude burger and going, yep, yep, Vaughan was right. Hey, after the break, the apps and websites you just cannot live without. Back soon. It's Sunday Social with Vaughan Davis on Radio Live. And welcome back to Sunday Social. I'm Vaughan Davis with you right through till 8 o'clock. Anna Connell back in the chair. Welcome back, Anna. Hello. And, of course, there are a bazillion apps out there. Most of them are rubbish. And I'm not sure... I'm not sure if this one is rubbish or not. Um, 
Did you notice the other week that Apple, in its new operating system, uh, in its phone operating system announcement, said they're going to come out with a thing called Measure that would allow you to measure things with your phones? Did you catch that news? Or was I didn't catch that news because I didn't really pay attention because I couldn't see anything super exciting. Yeah, it was Apple kind of news. in the tsunami of, mm. of, of other stuff. Anyway, the, but the news for me, because I'm an Android user, is that within moments of that, Android said, you know what, we're going to announce ours as well and we're going to launch it. And they've come out with an app called Measure. And the way this works is really quite cool. It uses the phone camera and it uses uh, various um, augmented reality um, technologies built in the phone and the focusing aspect of the camera to work out what is in the environment and measure it, which is really quite cool. So I'll let you hold that, Anna, and have a look. So have a look through the phone. Can I, point, me can point, I measure you? Pointed at something. Pointed at me. Am I? Am I covered? I should. You should see in a moment that I'm covered in white dots. Am I covered in white dots? No. Not quite. Pointed at something square. Pointed at that phone. So what it does is, and you move the phone around a bit. You move the phone around in 3D space, and it kind of works out that it's got an environment in front of it, and deduces what the shapes, the 3D and 2D shapes are, and gives you the option to drag rulers into the space and measure it. It's probably a bit dark in the studio, isn't it? Maybe it is. Yeah, yeah. but it's really quite cool. It's buggy as heck. Um, Android or Google has rushed it into production in order to, to, to make it happen, but um, it's, got, it's got the march on, uh, on Apple. There we go. Look, Anna, see? Mm. See the dots there? There we go. And we just drag a ruler and we go, oh, how big is that thing? And it'll tell us. The problem is it's really, really inaccurate. It doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did I not say that? Did I not say that? It's it, really cool, but it doesn't do the thing that it really needs to do when you do measuring. I know, but that, that's the thing. In this, in this digital age, 2018, you can bring out a product. It's really cool. People like it. It doesn't have to work necessarily. No, no, it's amazing. Look, it will work, won't it, one yeah, day? Yeah, yeah. But I like it, because who can ever find the measuring tape? Well, exactly. Um, Bob the Builder probably can, but the rest of us can't. Um, but the, the, the beauty of it is it, 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 it allows us to, you know, do all those, those essential measuring jobs. You know, suddenly we, you want to know, how big is my carpet? I, want, I need new carpet. Mm. How big is my wall? I want to get some paint. Uh, even how tall is that tree? I'm standing on the ground. How tall is that how tree? How tall is the tree? That's cool. Yeah, yeah, it is kind of cool. Um, it replaces the, the previous measuring apps. Have I told you about the tape measure app or the ruler app? Yes, you have. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah which, which, <laughs> which, which, which was pretty much the worst app in the world. Download a ruler app. Um, no one's going to be downloading these anymore now that the augmented reality ones are around. Uh, and all you got was a picture of a ruler that appeared on your screen. You used, used your screen to measure things. Yeah. I like, I like it because it's kind of an indication of how things like... Um, AR, augmented reality, can become useful rather than sort of just a, a kind of a gimmick, a gimmick type yeah, thing, yeah. like the burger Catch, robot. Catching dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's better than the burger robot. It's there you better. Go. So this cost robot. me nothing. It didn't take eight years. Mm. It's on my phone right now, and it's better than the burger robot. Yep. I need to I need to get one of those uh, robot burgers and measure it with my with my measure app. Yeah. So if you're on Android, you can download that for free right now. Caution, it doesn't work. Uh, and if you well, it probably works in some circumstances. Uh, and if you're on Apple, just wait for iOS 12, I think it is, which is coming out soon. Um, what What's the worst app you've ever ever encountered in your whole entire life? You didn't expect this question, but. Biggest waste of space. Um, biggest waste of space. I just need to be careful not to... Upset a client or a former employer. Yeah, or, yeah. you know... Anyone. The council or the government. You're just the wrong person to ask. 
Um, no, I've definitely downloaded some really crap apps. Some real before. stinkers. Yeah. Oh, we should come back to this. We should do as as a, as a, a regular spot each week. I mean, at the moment, the, the worst for me, and I, I, I keep coming back to this, is the Hector's Dolphin app, which is a whole entire opulent and regularly updated app that is just for use if you happen to spot a Hector's Oh, Dolphin. yeah, those apps that have, like, that single one use where there's never ever been a use case for it. Yeah, those are fabulous. But it seemed like a good idea. You can imagine sitting around the board table because, you know, of the uh, Waikato uh, Rapey Union, and someone says, let's get an app. And everyone goes, yes! Yes. Apps are where it's at. Just a solution to nothing, isn't it? A solution it? to nothing. Um, this next one, though, and, and, and I'm kind of on an um, anti-intellectualism anti drive. Does it, you know what I'm saying? Roughly? Yeah. Makes sense? Yeah. Um, you know, anti-anti uh, the Candy Crush people, anti the cat video people. Um, this next app will make you smarter. Oh, right, yeah, okay. You're quite smart. Thank you. But this will make you even smarter. It'll polish up your smartness. It's called Curiosity. Yeah, interesting. How do we look at this? I mean, it's it's only for Android at the moment, but I did some reading around it. I just am a bit like, do I need to fill my brain with any more things? Oh, well, I'm a big believer of that. I'm a big believer that you should always fill your brain with all the things because mm. that's that's when the magic happens. It's when, you know, you get a bit of poetry over here, a bit of engineering over here, a bit of, um, you know, hydrology over there. They yep. all sort of combine. So curiosity, oh, I didn't realise it was uh, it was only Android. I'm so sorry. Um, is an app that just promises that every day you will learn something new. And the way it does it, it's a bit like a magazine app, I suppose, like a magazine Every day at a time that you nominate, so you think, hmm, when will I be up for this? You know, when's, when's my bus ride or when's my sit-down after, you know, cooking dinner? Uh, it'll, it'll push you five new little articles. And they could be about anything. They could be about uh, mineralogy, Mars rovers, how sunscreen works, little science quizzes. And by the end of it, by the end of it, you know, it's, it's probably ten minutes a day by the, if you read well, most of the okay. things. Maybe I could do that instead of Candy Crush. Well, that's that's my thesis, uh, and I know I'm being a real snob here. Um, <laughs> I, I, I am being a snob here. Um, if you did 10 minutes of this a day out of your two hours of Candy Crush, you still get your Candy Crush done. The candy will still be crushed, but you will know how candy is made. And, true, and, true. And, and why they choose the colours of candy that they do. The app is called Curiosity. It's free, although it's quite um, ad-y. So for ten dollars a year, you can get the uh, you can get the ad-free version. It also says it's available as a podcast. So yeah, perhaps yeah, I can yeah. just download and listen to yeah, it. Yeah, you can. It's a whole. It's a whole. Curiosity is a whole little kind of um, ecosystem of, oh, okay, of cool. ways of getting facts into your brain. Maybe I'll do that. Maybe you'll do that. Or or you can try this new dating app. No, you can't because you're engaged. Ooh. No, no. I well, you can. I'm not going to judge. I'm no, not no. Judge. You Remember can. I downloaded Bumble to try and yep. we had a whole yep. awkward yep. conversation yep. because I, my fiancé was like, why are you on a dating app? I know because, well, this, so this... It's like, for Vaughan. Yeah. That no, didn't help. Th that, was a bad way of <laughs> that was a bad way of explaining it. You can just you can just tweet me. Um, this is this is interesting. So, so the people who, who make Tinder... Uh, are not resting on their laurels, uh, despite it being, you know, this this, this uh, phenomenon. Phenomenon. Uh, they br brought out a new app called Crown, which is not available in New Zealand yet. It's just on trial. Um, 
that turns dating apps into even more of a game than they are already. Ah, oh, lordy. Yeah, and this is very, this is a binary choice. So, again, it's kind of like that last one. Um, you choose the time of day, and uh, let's say it's noon. You get pairs of people, and you have to choose between, between which one. Oh, okay, that one. And then another one comes up to sit next to the to the you know to the winner. It's a oh, bit like, right. it's a bit like um, uh, Survivor. Yes. Survivor dating edition. Yeah. And, it's like and survival of the yeah the most swiped. Yeah, and well, it's not really. You always you always tapping. got a forced choice, and you go that one or that one. You can't go neither. You've got to go one. And by the end of going through these sixteen finalists, you end up with uh, you crown because that's why it's called crown. You crown someone the winner of that round, and uh, and, and they're, they're the person. That I actually quite with. like that. Like I I know that it's kind of a, a gamified thing, but there was a guy that did a whole lot of um, statistical analysis around trying to find the right person to date like he applied stats to it and actually a lot of it is that kind of thing where you you know you start with a large pool and you just eventually keep on going through and um i i mean i think what i was flabbergasted by is the fact that they're millennials you know the snake people oh, um yeah, spend yeah. 10 hours a week yeah average on average. dating apps and that's of everybody so it's i don't know if it's higher or lower for um married and couple people but uh, 10 hours a week on average so it clearly already is a game right because nobody i mean who has invested that much time in their dating life exactly who who indeed who indeed 10 <laughs> hours a week so the, the name of the app is crown it's currently being launched in of course los angeles uh coming soon to a phone near you oh, for it. me for me i'm for the old-fashioned way twitter <laughs> Hey, Anna Connell, thank you so much for joining me tonight on the show. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. And thanks, Michael Vermeulen from the New Zealand Game Developers Association. Yasmin in the booth, you are awesome. As always, next up, the Weekend Variety Wireless. I'm Vaughan Davis, 99.